On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I get to talk with Thomas Bogardus about the sex-gender distinction. So we talk about really the philosophy of gender, um, when this distinction came about, why the distinction is there, and is it a legitimate distinction? And then we talk about some of the more, I guess, modern and contemporary appropriations of this distinction and what that looks like. We also ask him about some good resources and places to go to learn more on this topic. I think it's a fascinating episode. I learned a lot uh, during it. Uh, I think I came out knowing a whole lot more and finding the the issue even more, uh, I guess, interesting. So I know you'll probably uh, really enjoy it. Uh, I think pretty much anybody is going to enjoy it. He's really easy to listen to. Uh, he explains this stuff clearly. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, take a listen. Let us know what you think. Welcome to another episode of the London Lyceum, uh, where we hope to encourage our thinkers to think deeply and clearly about issues. Um, and I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm alongside uh, Brandon Askew who uh, is with me, and we are really excited today to talk to Thomas Bogardus, a professor over at Pepperdine, I think, um, about the philosophy of gender. So um, before I give him a chance to introduce himself to you guys, uh, I think you're going to really be interested in this topic, number one. Um, I think I found him uh, on Twitter when one of his articles came out. The uh, Philosophia, I think it's, it's what it was with evaluating arguments for the sex gender distinction and it immediately caught my eye and I grabbed a copy of it and I read it and I found it fascinating and I don't know if anyone else has really been thinking deeply about these issues at least from uh, more I don't know for lack of a better word conservative uh, I guess viewpoint uh, so I was really really intrigued and I had to reach out to him immediately to get him on the show if he was willing and he was so Dr. Bogars, um, before we get into the, I guess, the details of the episode, for those uh, of our listeners who don't know you, um, what do they need to know about you and what might they not know about you that's important to know? All right. Well, um, like you said, I am a professor at Pepperdine University, um, though I should add that I'm just expressing my own views and opinions here, and I'm by no means a spokesperson for my employer, um, but I'm happy to be here to talk to talk with you about these issues. Um, as to what your listeners don't know about me, I mean, I, I should hope there's a lot they don't know about me. But, <laughs> uh, here's a quick little biography. Um, I'm originally from Southern California, and that's where I live now. And I went to the University of California, San Diego, and I was studying biology with an eye towards going to medical school or being a research scientist. But um, I found myself with a really deep interest in what I came to find out was biology, or sorry, <laughs> philosophy. Um, philosophy wasn't really on my radar, but those were the conversations I was having. Then eventually somebody informed me, oh, all this stuff is called philosophy. <laughs> and so I decided to like have a little fling with philosophy before I settled down with medicine or um, being a research scientist. And I thought, oh, I'll just go do a quick little master's degree at Biola University and get this out of my system and answer all my questions. And, and then I can be a doctor for the rest of my life. But uh, doors kept opening and opportunities kept arising. And I ended up getting a PhD in philosophy at the University of Texas, um, where I wrote a dissertation on the mind-body problem and the philosophy of mind, arguing for dualism on that question. Um, and then I managed to get a really good job here at Pepperdine. So I'm really happy about that. And since 
since then, I've been sort of um, migrating around different areas of philosophy. I got into epistemology, um, and then I wrote a paper on whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And a few years ago, like in 2016, I started getting interesting about I started getting interested in these gender questions because they were in the news and um, it seemed like a pretty important issue. So the nice thing about philosophy is you can enter a totally new area of research and you don't need any new equipment or anybody's permission. You just start reading new stuff and start writing new papers. And that's what I decided to do. And it's been pretty exciting. That's awesome. All right, Dr. Bergardus. Well, thank you for that uh, introduction. So I guess we should start out with just some basic definitions before we get into the details here of this topic of the distinction between sex and gender. So um, maybe can you give us a definition of gender, of sex, or any other words here that we're going to be using frequently that the listeners may need to have a, a working definition for? Yeah, well, um, one of the sticky sticky uh, features of this um, area of research is all of these terms are controversial and they're all sort right. of <clears throat> contentious, but I can give your listeners a, a sort of list of options um, so that when your listeners hear the word gender being used or hear the word sex being used, they at least know what some possibilities are, like what the person might possibly mean. But um, I think it is important to know that in these conversations, it's super important when you're talking with somebody about this to ask them what they mean by the words. Um, mm -hmm. But I can give you some options. So traditionally, and I think still most most biologists would accept this, um, when you hear the word sex being used um, to describe human beings, that is a biological concept. And um, when it comes to humans, it sure looks like humans are a sexually dimorphic species. They come in one of two varieties. Um, and the vast majority of humans fall into one of these two categories. We call them male and female. And the human species is by no means unique in this regard. A whole lot of other species have decided to do sexual reproduction in this way with two types of critters. And what distinguishes these two types is the, um, the type of gamete or sex cell that they produce. So to be a male is to belong to the subtype of a species that produces small um, typically highly motile um, gametes. That just means they move pretty quickly. Um, and we call those sperm. Um, so that's what it is to be male. Although you should we should quickly add that not every male produces sperm, um, either because they're very young or maybe they're very old or they've got some sort of injury or disease or something like that. So I think that to properly understand this category and a lot of other biological categories, you have to um, import notions of proper function. And so what we mean when we call somebody a male in biology class is something like this person will produce sperm or has produced sperm or at least would produce sperm if everything were functioning properly. It's something like that. That's what it takes to belong to this category of male. And then similarly with the category of female, um, that's the subtype of a species that produces large typically immotile gametes that we call eggs. Um, and then the same caveats about proper function apply here too. So usually and commonly and traditionally, these words male and female are biological sex terms. And we're talking about the type of gametes that 
a creature produces or would produce or has produced. Um, so I think maybe I'll just say that about biological sex for now. And then I'll tell you that when it comes to gender, the word gender, um, so I'll just, I'll just give you a brief history of that word. So if you've studied another language, you've probably noticed that in a lot of other languages, um, for example, nouns and pronouns come in different varieties. So like in Spanish, there's two options. It could be a masculine noun or a feminine noun. And in, when it comes to grammar and linguistics, these two types were falling under a broader category that was known as gender in linguistics, in grammar. Um, and the, the two types of gender when studying languages were feminine and masculine. Um, but it was just a linguistic phenomenon up until like the middle of the 20th century when psychologists and also philosophers decided to import that word, gender, um, to refer to actual masculinity and femininity, um, actual features of men and women, uh, humans. And I guess it was sort of handy because, I mean, prior to that, you might have asked, well, do masculinity and femininity fall under a more general type? And I don't know if we had a good word for the general type um, that these two things fell under. And gender was kind of a handy, handy word to describe those two things. So originally, gender, when it was imported from linguistics and grammar and applied to humans, referred to masculinity and femininity. And what those are is... Um, the sort of roles or norms that we associate with males and females um, in our society. So, you know, boys are meant to or should um, wear blue, play with trucks, don't cry, stuff like that. Uh, I'm not endorsing these norms. I'm just sort of getting your listeners <laughs> to glom on to the concepts here. Whereas, like, stereotypical norms of femininity are wear pink, um, wear dresses, play with dolls. Uh, etc. So that's originally what the word gender was introduced to mean. But since the middle of the 20th century, it's kind of taken on a life of its own and morphed. And now there's a lot of different conceptions of what gender is meant to be. Um, but maybe for now, we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. Um, just kind of, I guess, the origination of the distinction. Um, and when that kind of happened. So what I'm really curious about, though, is that now we have this pretty clear cl distinction, it seems, in most cultural milieus. I think I um, have pretty much always heard this. I think as, as long as I've been alive, it seems like sex, gender, there's been a difference that people have espoused. And I've never really thought about it. So why do people make this distinction? What is the reason to say that there's something different than just biology, that there's a further layer that is gender that seems to capture these norms that you're speaking about? Well, I mean, I think we've always made this distinction. It's one thing to be a man, and it's another thing to be masculine. Hmm. It's, it's possible to be a man in the traditional sense of man, where that's an adult human male. It's possible to be a male who's an adult and who's human and yet not be very masculine and in fact be sort of feminine. Um, and it's possible to be a woman in the traditional sense of woman, or that is an adult human female, and yet not be feminine or maybe be masculine or sort of be a blend of both. So we always had this distinction. Um, originally, the word gender was introduced just to refer to these two types, feminine and masculine, uh, using 
a sort of category term. What are these two species of masculinity and femininity? What's the genus for these species? And I, I guess we didn't have a good word for that. And so we borrowed it from linguistics because we already had masculine and feminine nouns and pronouns. And in linguistics, they called this phenomenon gender. Um, and so back when psychologists were interested in studying um, masculinity and femininity and social norms, and this became a more salient area of research, I think they just reached to linguistics and said, oh, cool, let's use this word gender. But it was a distinction we were already making. We already had the distinction. It was just sort of a handy name for it. Um, and if that's what the word gender refers to, if it refers to norms or roles, um, the sort of expectations we have of a person in virtue of his or her sex, then, um, I mean, it's not super controversial. And clearly there is a sex gender distinction because as we've already said, it's possible to be male and not be very masculine. It's possible to be female, and not be very feminine. So that's a distinction we can all we all accept and it's not very controversial yeah it started it started becoming controversial when um especially philosophers started talking as though our ordinary terms man and woman were gender terms so when the distinction was originally introduced when gender was brought in from grammar and linguistics um it was pretty clear that what gender referred to was masculinity and femininity, like ways that men and women are. Mm -hmm. And again, that's different from being a man or a woman. But what started happening in the second half of the 20th century was people started thinking, um, well, these sort of norms and roles and expectations, that's actually what manhood is and what womanhood is. It's not just what masculinity is and what femininity is, but to be a man is to um, abide by or exemplify these expectations and these norms and these rules. To be a woman is to um, abide by the norms of femininity. Um, and so, I mean, a famous quotation that pops up in these conversations is Simone de Beauvoir in her famous book, The Second Sex, um, she says, one is not born, but becomes a woman. And so notice she didn't say one is not born, but becomes feminine or one is not born, but becomes womanly. She said in the translation anyway, and I'm pretty sure this is a faithful translation. One is not born, but becomes a woman. And she didn't just mean because women are adults. She means, <laughs> um, an adult human female could fail to be a woman if she were like insufficiently feminine. And so that sort of slide between using gender to refer to masculinity and femininity, sliding from that to using it to refer to manhood and womanhood is a major step in the process that like led us to where we are today. We, it's a total rethinking of what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. Interesting. So if I understand right, it seems like we used to have just a typical distinction where sex is biology, gender is kind of a social norm. Mm -hmm. And now, if I'm understanding rightly, a lot of people are either changing what gender means to be more biological in nature or, or removing biology. How is that working? Yeah. Well, um, so that word gender again was borrowed from another area and it was just sort of stipulated to mean um, the social um, meaning of sex. That's typically how it's cashed out, the social meaning of sex, where that means something like the norms or expectations that we attach to being male and female. Um, so originally that's 
what the term was introduced to mean. And it was like a, it was a technical term. It was a stipulation, like let us henceforth use the word gender to refer to the social meaning of sex. <laughs> so, um, I mean, although that word did kind of change its meaning from what it meant in the area of grammar to what it meant in the area of the human sphere, um, it was really clear that like, we are borrowing this word and giving it a technical definition. But what was a little more subtle was the change that happened with um, words that have long been in our vocabulary and that exist in every language I know of. And I mean the words man and woman, um, not masculine and feminine, but man and woman. And so traditionally, and you'll still see this in dictionaries, commonly and traditionally, the word man is defined in terms of biology. To be a man is to be a biological male who's also human. Um, I mean, there are males in other species, so you got to be a human male. And furthermore, you got to be an adult. A child human male is called a boy. An adult human male is called a man. Um, and then similarly with woman and girl, they were defined in terms of biological sex. And so what's been changing first in um, philosophy down in the foundations of our culture's thinking and reasoning um, is these words man and woman started changing their meaning and they went from referring to something defined in terms of biological sex to the first move was to um, masculinity and femininity. Like it's a certain type of person that's a man, a certain type of person who's a woman and which type depends on what social role you're occupying. So to be a man is to play the right social role, roughly to like abide by masculine feminine or masculine um, norms or expectations. And then similarly with woman. Um, so that was like the first move. Um, and then the second move, which I'll just briefly mention was people started thinking that manhood and womanhood actually named categories that are defined not just in terms of um, norms and expectations, but in terms of oppression or privilege. So the thought became that um, to be a man is to occupy a certain kind of social role. And that role isn't just like liking blue and playing with trucks, etc. That role is to be privileged um, because you are observed or imagined to be biologically male. You don't have to actually be biologically male, but if you sort of present as biologically male or you're read as biologically male, and then you're given some sort of social privilege on that basis, now you're a man. Hmm. And then um, similarly with woman, to be a woman is to occupy a certain kind of social role on this next stage of the development of the meaning of these gender terms. And that social role is to be oppressed um, because you are observed or imagined to be female. You don't have to actually be female, again, as long as you're read as female and then oppressed on that basis along some dimension, like you're um, economically oppressed or um, socially oppressed or politically oppressed, if you're experiencing some kind of oppression because you are thought to be biologically female, then you're a woman. Um, and that's just what it is to be a woman. So yeah, we're sort of right now tracing the evolution of this concept of gender. Originally, it started out as masculinity and femininity. It was clearly different from being a man or a woman. But then, as I mentioned with that Simone de Beauvoir quotation, we started thinking that man and woman, those ordinary words in English, were actually gender terms. Um, so originally they were thought to refer to something like masculinity and femininity, but now where we are in the timeline is 
man and woman are thought to refer to social roles defined in terms of oppression. So that basically brings us to roughly the 1990s. That's where things were. Um, and then they started to change. But let me let me stop talking and see if you guys have anything to say. Yeah, I so, guess I'll let Brandon ask. Us. I guess I want to ask, just make sure I'm understanding rightly. Um, it seems that man and woman originally were, I guess, more biological located terms. Yes. If I'm a man, I'm a biologically male, that I may not have masculine or feminine gender type social traits or things, but I am biologically a man or yes. biologically female. Yes. And then it transforms to man and woman seem to shift to a gender social norm type of meaning. Yes. Away from the biological <clears throat> meaning. Yeah, that was the thought. Um, okay. And again, the thought was something like, you're not you're not born a woman, you're not a woman in virtue of your um, physiology, rather you become a woman by coming to play the right kind of role in society. Um, you develop into a woman in virtue of your social role. Um, so yeah, that's what was happening around the middle of the middle of the 20th century. Okay. Brandon, you had something to say. Yeah, so I, I read through your article evaluating arguments uh, for the sex gender distinction before we started today. And I wanted to get you to, um, so you go through a series of arguments against the, um, the traditional view of, of what a man is and what a woman is. And uh, so, you know, one of those is to refute uh, biological determinism. Another is an argument from intersex and uh, vagueness. And then another is rejection of normativity. I, I would like to, if you don't mind, have you discuss the one uh, about rejection of normativity? Because I think, um, at least for me, that seems like um, maybe at least at a popular level or on the ground floor, that's the one that you kind of hear the most. I don't know. but um, And you could maybe tell us why you think that argument against the traditional view of what a man is and what a woman is doesn't hold up. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that one. Um Although I am a little surprised to think that you you think it's very common because uh, I, I mean I would have listed this as one of the less common ones at least <laughs> in my in, I mean when I was just getting curious about this um, this area of course I started wondering like why did we ever um, make this distinction in the first place like what what is this sex gender distinction and why did people think it was true and I mean, by far and away, the most common justification you hear or you read in the literature is um, this distinction was originally introduced to somehow combat biological determinism, or as it's sometimes called, I think, misleadingly, biological essentialism. And that's usually, I mean, if you ask somebody working in this area, why is it that um, being a man is not defined in terms of biology, or why did we introduce the sex gender distinction? Why is it here? Uh, it's a pretty safe bet that you will hear a, in reply some sort of reference to biological determinism or biological essentialism. Um, I think that was probably the main motivation back when it happened. Um, and then I think the, probably the second most common justification I hear is a kind of argument from intersex individuals or the vagueness of biological sex. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we could we could jump to this third argument. Um, so in the paper that you referred to, uh, I found this argument in a recent Robin Dembrov article. 
And so, I mean, maybe I should just read the argument to let your listeners know how the argument's supposed to go. So here's what Robin Dembrov says. For all the huffing and puffing about gender is just body parts, no one in practice holds the identity view of gender, which was really surprising to me because I thought I held the identity view of gender. <laughs> um, but here's the reasoning. Um, here's why nobody actually holds this identity view of gender, or that view is um, gender just is biological sex. And if you think that gender terms are terms like man, and, this is me talking, by the way, not Dembrov. If you think that gender terms are terms like man and woman, what Dembrov is calling the identity view is the view that um, to be a man is to be an adult human male. So it's defined in terms of biology. To be a woman is to be adult human female. So here is Dembrov's argument against that identity view of gender. Okay, now I'm quoting. If gender is just reproductive features and nothing more, it makes no more sense to insist that people must look, love, or act in particular ways on the basis of gender than it would to demand that people modify their behavior on the basis of eye color or height. Even if reproductive traits are correlated to personality, physical capabilities, or social interests, such correlations don't equate to norms. As David Hume has taught us, is doesn't make ought. Having feet is correlated with walking, but I can walk on my hands if I want to. Having a tongue is correlated with experiencing taste, but who cares if I decide to drink Soylent every day? Once we recognize that gender categories mark how one ought to be, and not only how one's body is, the identity view unravels. To build in the aughts is to admit that gender is more than just body parts. So I'm just going to reread that last, those last two sentences because I think those are the most crucial ones. The, the argument concludes, once we recognize that gender categories mark how one ought to be. So the gender categories, I take it, are categories like man and woman, although these days we're told there are many more. Um, but it's at least man and woman. Those are gender categories. They mark how one ought to be, Dembrov says. Not only how one's body is, then the identity view unravels. Okay, to build in the odds is to admit that gender is more than just body parts. So I thought the argument went something like this. Um, I thought about this uh, pretty long and hard because it wasn't super clear to me how the argument was supposed to go. But I think Dembrov is trying to point out a difference between um, our gender terms, man and woman. Those are now known as gender terms. Um, and our biological sex categories. So like, here's why to be a man isn't just to be an adult human male and to be a woman isn't just to be an adult human female. Because when we use words like man and woman, there are kind of normative implications. If you call someone a man, you're sort of implying how he ought to behave. Um, if you're calling someone a woman, there are implications about how she ought to behave. But the argument continues when you call someone an adult human male, there are no such normative implications. When you call someone an adult human female, again, no normative implications. These are just pure descriptions of how somebody is when you call them male or female. There are no implications about how they should be. And so if that were true, if these two premises were true, man and woman have normative implications, male and female do not have normative implications. And I guess that would show that um, there is a difference between these concepts. So being a man isn't just being an adult human male, and same thing with women. So I think that's how the argument's supposed to go. Um, 
before I proceed to evaluating the argument, you guys have any questions or anything? No, I don't think so. I think that makes sense. So it seems no. like the argument is making a distinction between man and male, where yeah. is it, male is a gender term and not a sex term. No, the idea is that male is a sex term and man okay. is a gender term. Okay, and so it's like that, okay, that, that male is just purely descriptive. There's no ought that, that goes with male, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's the idea. Okay. Because the proposal, the sort of traditional view, what Dembrov is calling the identity view, says uh, it's like an equation. On the left side of the equal sign is man. Mm -hmm. And so we're saying man equals adult human male. And so um, in order to evaluate identity claims like that, you try to think whether um, the two sides of this equation have any differences, whether something's true of one side but false of the other. And that would be enough to show that um, this isn't a true equation. It's not a true identity statement um, because the left side is different from the right side, so they can't be the same. And so I think Dembrov's trying to say that here's the difference between being a man and being an adult human male and between being a woman and being an adult human female, um, our concept of manhood has some oughts built in. So if you call someone a man, again, you're sort of implying he's allowed to stand like this and sit like this and he can't cry and yada, yada, yada. Um, no dresses or something like that. I don't know. I'm just yeah. trying to list some gender norms. Um, but when you call someone a male, an adult human male, there are no such normative implications. It's just sort of neutral. There's just crickets when it comes to normativity. When you call someone a male, it's just silence. Um, and so that shows that these aren't really concepts of the same thing, that this, this identity statement is really not true. So yeah, I think that's the argument. And as far as like the form of the argument, I think it's a good form of the argument. This is how you would refute an identity claim by showing that um, these things actually have a difference. The two sides of the equation have a difference. One has a feature that the other lacks. That would be enough to show that the identity statement's not true. But um, I think that um, although the argument form is good, I think at least one of the premises is false. And so one premise said, man and woman, those concepts have normative implications. The next premise says male and female don't have normative implications. Um, so I think you, I think the advocate of the traditional view can go one of two ways. You either say, well, actually, um, our concept of adult human male and our concept of adult human female do have normative implications. And I guess this is sort of the way I'm inclined to go. So I think that's true. I think that, um, purely biological descriptions of things can imply oughts. So here's just a little warm-up exercise. If, if all you know about an organ is that it is a, a heart, I'm talking about an organ in your body. If, if all I tell you is that like, I'm looking at a heart right now, this thing is a heart. That's, a, that's just a description of the thing, but there are some implications about what it should do. It should pump blood. Um, it should beat regularly. It shouldn't go above 300 beats per minute or whatever. Um, now, these are just sort of proper function oughts, and you might think, well, those aren't full-blown moral lots. We're just talking about like design plans and proper functioning. But that was just a warm-up exercise. Now here comes like the real deal. I think that if all that I if all that I tell you about something is that it's an adult human male, that's all I tell you. I think you are in a position to know and to infer 
um, certain normative facts about this thing. If only facts like this, this thing should not be enslaved. This thing should not be sold into like some kind of sex slavery. This thing shouldn't be murdered. Um, you know, all sorts of facts about this thing, knowing only that it's an adult human male. Uh, it's not like you'd be left wondering like, well, it's an adult human male, but is it the kind that I can enslave or something like that, you know? Um, you know that you can't enslave it, knowing only that it's a male. So I think there are these sort of normative implications from our purely biological concepts. And of course, that's no surprise to people who hold the traditional view, because to be a man just is to be an adult human male. So if I know that somebody's an adult human male, I'm in a position to know all sorts of interesting normative facts about him. <laughs> And of course, the same thing goes with being a man, because again, on the traditional view, these just are the same concepts. But I don't mean to argue this way. I don't mean to say like, well, if the traditional view is true, of course, there can't be a difference between being a man and being an adult human male. Rather, I just I'm encouraging your listeners or encouraging my readers to just reflect on the claim that if all you know about something is that it's an adult human male or an adult human female, can't you reasonably infer some moral facts about this thing? Mm -hmm. And I think you can. And so that sort of vindicates the traditional view and I think um, defends it from this sort of objection. Uh, and then I guess there's one little epicycle I can add here, a little footnote, um, if you're interested. I'll just do it really quickly. Um, yeah. here's, here's another way you could go. So some of the norms that Dembrov mentions are things like shave your legs. That's a norm that sort of uh, is implied by being a woman. Um, shave your legs. So that doesn't really seem like a moral fact about women. That's, that, that doesn't actually seem like something that women really have to do. Otherwise, they're bad people or something like that. Yeah. Um, so if you use examples like that, then although it is true that... Um, if all I know about something is that it's an adult human female, I can't really infer that um, this type of thing should shave its legs. Um, th that norm isn't really implied by a purely biological description of the thing. I think you can go in the same, you can go the same way with the first premise that says that like being a woman does imply that such a one should shave her legs. I think you should just deny that and say, well, and you can prove it by reflecting on possible situations where there are women, but uh, they don't shave their legs. I mean, I live in a hippie town in California, and that's basically how things are where I live. <laughs> I think there are, there are women, um, but a good number of them don't shave their legs. And it's not like I conclude, oh, I guess, I guess you're not a woman after all, or something like that. Right. Um, no, rather, I just conclude these aren't actually like normative implications that follow from our concept of being a woman. Um, and the same thing goes with our concept of being an adult human female. So I don't think that Dembrov has really shown any sort of discrepancy here uh, between the two sides of the equation. That's helpful. So as, as, I guess as I'm thinking um, about this distinction, it seems that it's appropriate to make the distinction. It's just how we're making the distinction and then we're, what we're doing with terms like um, male and female, man and woman, and where they should be placed as far as if it's a gender or a sex term? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I mean, there are, there's a lot of concepts on the table here. Yeah. Here, here are some distinctions that I think we should all grant. Masculinity is different from being a man. Masculinity is different from being a male. These things are all distinct. Mm -hmm. And similarly with femininity and being a woman and being a female. And it's also, I mean, 
being a man isn't strictly the same as being male because there are males of other species who aren't men. So those are distinct as well. Um, so I think we should accept all of those distinctions. And if by gender somebody just means masculinity and femininity, then yeah, we should accept there's a sex gender distinction. But if by gender somebody means, oh no, these are gender terms, man and woman, mm -hmm. those are gender terms. And then they go on to claim that like, gender is distinct from sex. And by that, I mean, um, gender terms are not accurately defined in terms of biological sex. Well, then that's at least where I get off the boat. And I say, wait a second. Um, traditionally and commonly to be a man is to be an adult human male that is defined in terms of biology. <clears throat> so if you're proposing a distinction between man and adult human male, I need to hear more about it. Like what is this alleged distinction and why I think it's true. And we just looked at one argument in favor of that alleged distinction. And I didn't think that argument was very good. Okay. Yep. So Brandon, did you, were you going to say something? No, you can go ahead. Okay. So I'm, I guess I'm curious as far as, uh, I think most all of our listeners are Christians of some sort, whatever denominational, uh, background they have. Um, is, do you know if there are any like confessional or denominational positions that take a stand on this issue and kind of explain it at all? Or is this something that has not really been touched on? Well, I mean, certainly uh, it's new on the scene. This idea is not something that I think was really on the radars of the um, biblical authors for sure. And not even on the radars of like early Christians before mm -hmm. the last 50 years. So I wouldn't really expect to find the issue addressed like in the biblical text themselves or even in the writings of Christians after um, the New Testament. Um, I do know, I think it's just sort of assumed by <laughs> the traditional view is just sort of assumed by the biblical authors and by virtually everybody up until um, about 50 years ago. So it's only recently that I think this issue has risen to prominence and has sort of called for a response. But that's sort of like how things go in the history of the church. I mean, it's only when a, when new views that are in conflict with Christianity arise that the church takes a stand and makes mm -hmm. a declaration. Um, so that's starting to happen. I mean, at least um, in the Catholic church, which I'm a part of, uh, I don't think... I mean, I don't think this yet rises to the level of like official dogma. Again, it's just sort of widely assumed. And if I think if the Catholic Church were pressed, they would declare the traditional view official dogma. Mm -hmm. um, but you're starting to see it in um, um, in texts that are coming from the Vatican that have some degree of weight, although they're not yet like considered infallible or official doctrine or anything like that. But I'm thinking of um, the Congregation for Catholic Education, which released um, an article called Male and Female, He Created Them Towards a Path of Dialogue on the Question of Gender Theory and Education. So although, I mean, this is an interesting read, if your listeners are, are keen to check it out, you can just Google the title. Um, it's a little unsatisfying in one respect where they don't actually just say like, hey, here's what it is to be a man and here's what it is to be a woman. But if you read the whole text, there are statements that pretty clearly seem to imply the traditional view. So I think that's that's the direction the Catholic Church is going in. As for um, Protestants, I mean, they're um, 
there's this Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which mm -hmm. released the Nashville Statement in 2017. Mm -hmm. And there too, I mean, I guess that's as close to like uh, a church council as one finds in Protestantism. I mean, that's like <laughs> you're sort of getting like um, respected experts together who are revered by the community and viewed as very wise and um, carrying great weight. And then they deliver something that sort of looks like the canons of a ecumenical council. Um, not much was given by way of reasoning or justification. You just get these like articles that sort of say like, yeah. here's where we stand. And again, it's a little bit frustrating because you never get like a explicit definition of what it is to be a man or a woman, or even an explicit definition of what it is to be male or female. But I think the intentions of the authors are pretty clear and they are trying to endorse the traditional view of, um, manhood and womanhood, um, yeah, and furthermore, they go on to say that, like, it's part of God's design for humans to conceive of themselves in terms of their reproductive capacities. Let me have it opened on a tab here. Um, the differences between male and female reproductive structures are integral to God's design for self-conception as male or female. Hmm. Uh, like, I don't know, man, this, is, this looks like the sort of article that was written by a committee um, I've been on a lot of committees and I know how it goes. <laughs> um, so it's not super clear what's being said here, but I think what they're trying to say is um, it's part of God's design that we, when we conceive of ourselves, we conceive of ourselves accurately, especially when it comes to terms like male and female. So you should conceive of yourself as a male only if you've got the right sort of anatomy, only if you are a member of the subtype of a species that produces small motile gametes. Um, so they don't talk about manhood and womanhood, but I'm thinking they probably would say the same thing. You should identify as a man, conceive of yourself as a man, only if you're male. And by male, we mean something biological. So I think that that Nashville statement is trying to take a stand in favor of that traditional view of manhood and womanhood. Um, so if your listeners consider that authoritative, there you, there you go. <laughs> so it's... What happens, I know this is probably like an hour-long question, really, but what do we do with the intersex examples and the vague examples? Yeah. Yeah, so um, so I was, kinda, I was just about to say this, and it sounds a little like self-promotional or a little bit, <laughs> a little bit braggy, but um, so I'm glad that the Nashville statement came out. It's nice that you've got all these church leaders trying to address the issue and clarify things. Um, and I'm glad that, uh, that Catholic article I mentioned came out, that that was released by the Vatican, but, um, uh, they're both satisfied. They're both sort of unsatisfying in the same way. Like they didn't quite nail down what the issues are and what all the relevant views are and what the arguments are for the opposing views and why those arguments are bad. So here comes the self-promotion. Like I, I, nobody else was doing that. And so yeah. I tried my best to do that. Um, and so I, if your listeners are interested in this sort of thing, you know what, maybe check out the stuff I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> and um, although these were published in like a professional philosophical journal, I think they are fairly accessible to non-philosophers. I mean, there's not a ton of jargon yeah. and when there is jargon, I try to define it. Um, but yeah, I think this is a good question because this is a kind of, this is a response that one hears in these conversations. If, if you 
ask like why why are we going in for these new views of gender why why should we revise the traditional view what's wrong with the traditional view um why can't manhood just be um just be the state of being an adult human male what's wrong with that um you often hear references to like intersex individuals and um just the vagueness of our biological sex categories and so in my paper evaluating arguments for the sex gender distinction i present an example of this sort of argument, but I'll just briefly summarize it. The argument is something like, well, the, the term man and the term woman can't refer to adult human males and adult human females, respectively, um, because if that were the case, then everybody would fall neatly and easily, this philosopher says, who I'm relating to you, everybody would fall neatly and easily into either the category man or the category woman. Um, so yeah, if, if humans really, if we were sexually dimorphic in this way, if there really just were two varieties of humans, man and woman, um, then everybody would fall into one of the two categories. They should be, uh, these are exhaustive, these two categories. So that's premise one. If the traditional view is true, then everybody falls neatly and easily into one of these categories. Um, and not both, <laughs> not both categories, exactly one of those categories. And then the second premise is, um, lo, observe that many people do not fall neatly and easily into either one of these categories. Um, there are intersex individuals. Um, yeah. And so then the conclusion is, Hey, the traditional view is false. So I think that, um, this argument is not super persuasive. I do accept the second premise. Um, there are some people who don't fall neatly and easily into either one of these categories, but I don't think the traditional view requires that everybody fall neatly and easily into one of these categories. I think that um, when we're dealing with biology, when we're working in the realm of biology, we have to accept that there's going to be some vagueness with virtually all of our categories, all of our concepts. I mean, even like the central concept of biology, the concept of life is vague. And there are borderline cases, like it's kind of unclear whether viruses are alive. Um, it's unclear whether prions are alive. They're like self-replicating, um, but they don't do a lot of other things that we associate with life. Um, so there's vagueness um, with that concept. And that's the central concept. And I think virtually every other concept that I can think of in biology, that is a biological concept, is going to be vague in this way. Um, you can imagine clear cases of things that are like enzymes, clear cases of things that are not enzymes, and then you can imagine a whole spectrum in between, and there's going to be some borderline cases. Um, and the same goes with all of our biological concepts. And so if you think that manhood and womanhood are defined partly in terms of biology, um, if you think that to be a man is to be an adult human male, and to be a woman is to be an adult human female, you should totally expect there to be some borderline cases and some unclear cases. Because every bit of that definition admits of borderline cases. Adult, human, male, those all admit of borderline cases. And just think about like the concept of being an adult. Uh, we know that three-year-olds are not adults. We know that when you're paying a mortgage and filing your taxes and repairing your own fences, that's, yeah, you're definitely an adult. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's a whole lot of borderline cases in between. Uh, like my students are sort of in the middle there and not they're not quite they're not children but they're not like full-blown adults they're sort of on the way 
um, but they're not quite there yet. And I mean, I don't mean to disparage them when I use this example in my classes, they all agree. <laughs> like they don't, I, when I was that age, I didn't really feel like an adult, you know, even though legally at 18, you're an adult, we all admit that that's an arbitrary line that we draw. Um, same thing with being a human. I mean, there, you can easily imagine that a borderline cases of humans, like, I don't know how your listeners feel about evolution, but let's just, let's just fast forward things, you know, imagine that sure. humans keep changing and keep um, adapting. Um, we might reach a point where we say like, Hey, actually, this is a new species that we're, that we got here. Um, that could happen. It happens with other, um, other critters. So human is vague, allows a borderline cases. And then, um, I think of course, male is vague and allows for borderline cases and intersex individuals are examples of that. At least some of them are. And so I don't think that the fact that there's vagueness disproves that humans are a, um, a sexually dimorphic species. Uh, I think in, in fact, it's just what you would expect if manhood and womanhood are defined in terms of biology. You should totally expect there to be borderline cases because biology is shot through with vagueness. That, that, I think that's a helpful uh, answer to the question because I think that it seems like that one's definitely a burning question, at least from people I've encountered. So for those who want to read more of your stuff or want to connect with you and follow you when you publish new things, where's the easiest place for them to follow you? So I think if you just Google my name, um, since it's kind of an unusual name, um, the first or second result will take you to my um, professional website, which sounds very fancy, but it's pretty low tech. It's just a, it's a Google Sites thing, and I just sort of collect um, my papers there. Um, so my name is Thomas Bogardis, spelled like Tomas, T-O-M-A-S. Um, so if you just Google that name, oh wait, and then the last name is B-O-G-A-R-D-U-S then that'll take you to my website and you can see the stuff I've written. Awesome. Well, we really thank you for taking the time to, to talk yeah, with us. You. I think this has been super interesting and uh, we will definitely recommend all your pieces uh, to, for our listeners to check out. Um, I think, as you mentioned, you think it's pretty accessible. I think it is too. Um, I think you don't have to be super familiar with everything to understand. Um, even if it is in a professional philosophy journal, it, it, your writing makes sense and is, is clear and helpful. So before I let you go, do you have any recommendations besides your own work for places people should check out to learn more things about this topic? Yeah. Um, so Alex Byrne is a philosopher at MIT, and he recently wrote a paper in this same vein. Um, your listeners would probably be interested in it as well. It's called um, Are, Women, uh, Are, Are Women Adult Human Females? And his last name is spelled B-Y-R-N-E, um, Alex Byrne. So if you just search for that, Alex Byrne, are women adult human females, question mark, uh, you'll find his article, which I think is really accessible as well. Um, like we discovered a, a year or so ago that we were both working on this sort of thing. Um, that we were, uh, I forgot how he put it, like plowing the same soil or something like that. I don't know. We're working in the same field. Yeah. Um, so that's cool to have a philosophy buddy who's working on this too. Um, and then there's some people that, um, I mean, if you read those papers and just, you can check out the bibliographies in order to find an entry point into the literature. Like you can see who these papers cite and what, yeah. what, um, what authors we're interacting with. And then you can, chase down those papers 
Um, that's the virtue of a bibliography. But uh, I mean, there's also people your listeners might follow on Twitter and um, other philosophers they might want to check out things that they've written. Um, so for example, Kathleen Stock is on Twitter um, and she's very active and she's very interested in this area. And um, yeah, Sophie Allen is another one they might want to follow. Um, Holly Lawford Smith is not on Twitter, but um, she has a website where she's sort of collecting articles in this vein. And so you might want to check Holly Lawford Smith, her stuff out. Um, yeah, and then, ah, shoot, this always happens. My mind just goes blank when it comes <laughs> to recommend things, but I think that would be a good start. Okay. And then, of course, there's people on the other side that your listeners should read as well, people who advocate for revisionary definitions mm -hmm. of gender. So, I mean, if you read my papers, you'll see who I'm interacting with, but people like Sally Haslinger and Jennifer Saul and Robin Dembrov, um, Talia Mae Betcher, people like this would be worth reading as well. Awesome. That's super helpful. Uh, I know that's one thing I always like to do is to actually read both sides and not just read the people I agree with. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. Thanks for sending those our way. Um, and we definitely commend our listeners to check them out. Um, and we want to, I guess, send a huge thank you to you, uh, Dr. Bogardis, for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, we had a ton of fun. And uh, I encourage our listeners again to check out all of those people, but definitely check out Dr. Bogardis' stuff um, and read it up and share it widely. All right. Well, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists as far as I know. And we uh, hope you turn in to tune into the next episode. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.